Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between. And of course, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic, which is once again part of our topic for today. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, YouTube, and now Rockfin to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis, and I am a musician, music producer, writer slash editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I'll be your host for today. But as always, we have the man himself. Allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth, my co-host, Matthew Crawford. Good morning or slash afternoon for you, Matthew. It's just now afternoon. We're two minutes in. I love it. Um, how was your weekend? You had a bit of an adventure. Uh, yeah, I had a good weekend. Uh, I took a uh, four and a half day trip and uh, uh, went hiking a little bit, went down into Carlsbad Caverns, uh, which uh, I don't know if you if you're familiar with Carlsbad, but it's this gigantic cavern cave uh, in uh, southeast New Mexico, and uh, we oh. around like 750 feet over like a two and a half mile windy path, and then you have these these amazing, you know, I, it, the whole thing's amazing, but um, you know these amazing cave formations, and and uh, there's one part that looks like I don't know, almost like a, a magical king and a queen in, in what's called the throne room. Um, you, you could imagine, uh, uh, you know, uh, indigenous peoples walking down there and finding this stuff and going, those are my gods. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> the whole thing is just spectacular, though. It's a great cave. And they keep finding more caves down there. I hope you took some pictures. I want to see some of this. I did. I did. I'll share some sometime on Substack. That sounds great. Okay, well, speaking of trips, uh, our guest today that we're, we're going to be talking to about some of the uh, significant challenges in taking a trip like yours for us Canadians. Um, uh, like many people around the world, there have been various measures put in place, uh, some more lawful than others, uh, in order to allegedly curb the spread of, of uh, the COVID-19 disease. But it's caused some issues. So allow me to bring in uh, my friend, Carl Harrison. How are you, Carl? I'm good. Thank you, Liam. Very, so, good. very nice to meet you, Carl. Nice to meet you, Matthew. I, I haven't had as a, quite an exciting a week as you seem to have had, um, <laughs> so far as I haven't been caving in New Mexico. Um, yeah, it was a uh, it was good to to get out. We all need to stretch our legs sometimes. So you know, find your adventure uh, at least for a weekend. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, and I was under the impression you might be traveling today or tomorrow. Uh, is that right, Carl? Uh, no, I, I was due to be traveling and will be traveling next week. So we're off to well, traveling within Canada anyway. We'll be off to Ottawa for the sort of first round of our. Um, uh, in court battle with the with, with the government and in the federal court in Ottawa. So I'll be traveling there next next Tuesday, and um, we'll see how we get on in the first part of that on the Wednesday. Incredible. Well, that's that's amazing timing. Then I wasn't aware that was the purpose of your travel. Well, that's a great uh, introduction. Can you just briefly explain um, what it is you are talking about, um, and maybe just give us some background for for members of the audience, perhaps who are hearing from you for the first time? Yeah. No. Sure. That that's fine. I mean, um, 
obviously the uh, the, the the pandemic in Canada has led to the uh, Canadian government introducing various um, uh, supposedly health related measures to uh, to to control the spread, and and one of the uh, the, the measures they brought in, as as many of the uh, your listeners will know, are a range of um, uh, proof of vaccination requirements. And um, one, uh, I personally consider them to be ineffective and fairly odious and uh, coercive and uh, divisive. But um, one of the worst of those is perhaps the, the mandate that they brought in to um, prevent uh, probably five or six million Canadians from traveling because they hadn't undergone um, a, a medical therapy by having some injections. Um, and um, that was imposed upon Canadians in, uh, in October, November of 2021 and um, was recently suspended um, in uh, the end of June of this year. Um, and that's uh, a set of measures that we set about challenging in the uh, federal court starting in December and uh, and it's it's ongoing at the moment. And we, we, we believe that the, the prime primary success of that so far has been to push the government into a suspension of those measures at the end of June, which is uh, which is the, the most positive thing to have come out of it to, so far, along with some revelations that have arisen uh, from cross examination of government witnesses in the case. So that's that's I mean I'm I'm just a, a an ordinary Canadian citizen and a businessman and you know. A, in, with uh, British and Canadian citizenship, and I'm working with uh, another uh, a, a, another another Canadian, uh, and also with British citizenship, called Sean Rickard, who's my co-applicant based in Ontario, and uh, a wonderful lawyer called Sam Presvelos, who um, is uh, 30 years old with a, a mind much older and a, a skill set that dwarfs. Um, many in his profession and um, not with a great deal of experience in constitutional law, but doing a fantastic job for us. And um, and we'll, we'll see how we get on when we actually get to court. Now, you 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 dropped a number of very uh, interesting things that I'm going to have us pursue in a bit. Before we do that, take us a little further back. You're a British citizen and a Canadian citizen. You were born in Britain. Can you give us what what brought you to where you are now in your life? Give us your personal backstory. Um, I, I was born in the UK. I was uh, born in a place in northwest England called Blackpool, which is... Um, Famous for a Victorian tower, amongst other, amongst other elaborate features. Um, but I spent most of my life in London, in the UK. Went there when I was seventeen, and uh, met my long-term partner Emma in London. Um, we're still here. We are thirty years later, but we're in Canada. Um, we, I, I have a, I have a, I have Canadian family, so I've got a long history. Um, with Canada. My great-grandfather immigrated into Canada in 1909 and was an original homesteader in Saskatchewan. Um, and he uh, set up a farm on 10 acres of land in Eston in the, in the prairies. Um, and so I was, I, I had uh, family coming to visit me from Canada in the 1960s when, uh, when I was a child and right the way through into the 70s. And I, I kind of got my, my, um, initiation into thinking about Canada at that time from from those relatives and I really loved them and I love what they 
seemed to stand for and they were more relaxed than us Brits for sure <laughs> um, and they and and they had had a different life and so that was um, the start of the adventure we started traveling to Canada in the 1990s when my oldest friend uh, moved here um, and uh, he married a Canadian girl and was living in Ontario and so we used to come and visit him and have these wonderful experiences and go camping and you know just getting out in the in the back country in Ontario there and having a wonderful time with the with my son at the time so we fell in love with Canada then it all seemed so easy compared to what I was used to it was great it had a it had a backyard I'd never seen before um, and uh, and I've always had an interest in that so we started coming and gradually we edged towards um, living here and after six years of an application process then we came in through Quebec and eventually ended up living in British Columbia where we are now and uh, and and here we are so and um, and that's kind of my backstory really I'm a businessman I've been in lots of different sectors um, primarily in the hospitality sector with lots of restaurants and bars and nightclubs in London in the UK and some music venues and comedy venues but I've also been involved in the music business that uh, I've lost money in the film sector like many people have um, <laughs> I've, um, you know, been involved in investing in sports in the U.S. and um, and I've been an occasional writer, a satirical writer for uh, quite a well-known magazine in the U.K. called Private Eye. Um, and uh, so that that's as that's probably as 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 much as is sensible to say at the moment. But um, that's that that's my backstory. And we um, we're now my family and I are now Canadian citizens. We became Canadian citizens in very proudly in 2015. Now, the introduction of this travel mandate, uh, it's its my understanding that having watched, uh, for example, congratulations on your uh, very high profile uh, interview with Jordan Peterson uh, and uh, your um, uh, co-applicant and uh, lawyer, that was a very, very excellent interview. Um, and through that and a few other appearances you've made, the mandate came across to you, if I'm not mistaken, as rather un-Canadian. Am I right? Very un-Canadian, and um, it came across to me. And, the, and equally, I think the reaction of many Canadians to it seemed to me to be un-Canadian. It wasn't what I was used to from Canadians. Um, I, I, I felt that Canadians would be more resistant to that kind of division in their, in, in their own country, and, and that didn't happen. The, the many Canadians seemed to be quite at ease with it. Um, and that, maybe that was a product of the amount of fear and misinformation that the Trudeau government was able to disseminate about about this, when in fact they, it, they, they knew a lot more at the start about what the products may or may not do that they wanted people to use as vaccines. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it seemed to me to be an un-Canadian approach to um, set Canadians against each other on the basis of what should just be a, funda a fundamentally basic and simple personal health choice. Yeah, I, I felt the same way about responses in the U.S. And, and the more that I, I learned, the more I saw that, um, you know, uh, propaganda techniques, very modern propaganda techniques, um, behavioral economics, behavioral insights team, the nudge unit, as they call it, um, which uh, started in, in the U.K. It was uh, originally an intelligence uh, unit within the UK government, but was spun off, uh, which I, I've never heard of a, an intelligence 
uh, unit being spun off, but uh, to work with many other governments and organizations around the world to try to, um, you know, uh, push people's opinion. And we don't know how they push people's opinions, right? We don't know what they did to stoke fear or, or uh, twist people's emotions, but uh, that's been uh, pretty disturbing everywhere. Yeah, I mean, for, for sure, there was seemingly a little bit of a playbook or little, some, I mean, it looks like somebody had a flow chart as to how this might go. Um, and what started out um, as initiation of fear rapidly became um, a badge you could pin on yourself and say, I, I'm a hero. I was brave. I've, I've, I've stepped up. I've done my part. Almost like, I mean, a very curious psychology to it, really, almost um, like trying to put people on a war footing um, and then damning conscientious objectors as, as traitors, almost. People who were not doing their part, were not, were not volunteering uh, to step forward and, um, and, uh, and, and have a medical therapy which apparently was going to protect everybody else, not just yourself. And, of course, we now know that's not the case. Um, and arguably, we knew that wasn't the case right at the start. Um, I think so. Um, I think that's likely that what the the reality was when 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 the companies involved were were preparing these products. I mean, the companies themselves. I mean, Moderna in particular. If anybody's followed Moderna for years, I and mean, I've been in and out of the markets for many years and have been watching what happened with Moderna and Moderna had like substantially failed by 2017. It burnt its way through 4 billion of cash. It had a product that didn't work. It had a product that wasn't allowed to progress beyond animal tests at the time. And really investors were turning away from it. And key investors were, you know, downgrading the valuation of Stefan Bansell's company at that time. And yet, um, you know, here we are with their products all over the world and Mr. Bansell's a hero. Yeah, well, uh, I, you know, Bill Gates knew something because the Gates Foundation came in with, uh, I believe, fifty million dollars in twenty nineteen. And that that wasn't the first investment. There was one, I think, as early as twenty thirteen or twenty fifteen from them. But it's sort of like that's not going to surprise anyone at this point. That what may surprise people is Moderna, in particular, where that company originated from it very much seems to have have been at least in significant part a spin-off of a, a department of defense um initiative and now we have and and this is a rabbit hole we don't need to go down but just the 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 mrna uh, materials being at least partially manufactured by a company with now with with cia uh ties so all of this really not going down the rabbit hole all of that should be reason enough for if somebody hears that and goes that just makes me a little uncomfortable i would say that's reason enough for someone to choose not to take this product some people may have issue with with kind of the feel of that whole operation but none of that was allowed there was no allowance for either in a lot of cases even religious or medical exemptions uh in fact in canada medical exemptions are limited basically to if you've been injured by this shot after the first dose um, and that's that's a little uh, crazy to me. Um, now, let's talk about the difference between what happened in Canada and the states, because the United States never had the equivalent travel restriction. Am I right about that? Yeah, you, you are. I mean, <clears throat> Canada's 
carved its own path here, really. Um, there have been some similar restrictions in other countries on a more temporary basis. Um, and certainly there have been similar restrictions at the, at the actual border for, for coming in, although most of those countries have now dropped them. We saw Australia and New Zealand even drop them in the last few days, and Canada still pursuing that. And indeed, America, of course, you know, the U.S. is still not allowing people to travel into the U.S. unless they can prove their vaccination status. Um, so that still exists on the U.S. border for all people going into the U.S., Matthew, as you probably are aware. Um, Canada just beat its own trail in going a little bit further than everybody else and um, restricting people within Canada from moving around. Um, uh, you know, if, if, they, if they couldn't prove vaccination and that certainly didn't happen in the US. I mean, they're very different countries. The US has a much more robust constitution. The US has a more robust legal system and it has more political diversity. So in terms of, so, so what you've seen down there, Matthew, is that attorneys general from states have been prepared to take the government on, on issues. And in Canada, where we have obviously a, a smaller number of provinces and territories, then basically they all folded like a cheap tent and didn't take the government on. And uh, so that's been left to citizens, private citizens, to try and raise these challenges with the support of some um, uh, charitable foundations that do this kind of legal work. But the real uh, heavy lifting on this kind of uh, abuse of civil liberties and abuse of privacy and uh, abuse of many things should be borne by the but uh, by. by as you've seen by in the states by the states and in canada by the provinces and it hasn't happened here and that's, well, that's very uh, sad. economists like to say you know follow the incentives and uh, i noticed that in canada um the salaries for public health officials um ballooned uh, as much as a hundred thousand dollars in a single year um I, I know that's at the national level but uh it wouldn't surprise me if there were you know similar incentives um, around the system. And of course, we know, um, I, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but the U.S. hospital incentives were incentives to, um, you know, make someone a COVID patient to go along with the, the um, you know, one PCR test diagnosis, which is, uh, <clears throat> people call it a sham test, but uh, there's sort of a nuance to it, uh, you know, and catching a lot of false positives and, and um, you know, the sensitivity and specificity numbers are claimed, but they are very, very situational. Uh, depends on the environment, uh, and and most people don't know that and don't know to to protest that. But um, so, what is it that you're doing exactly to push back? Given that the the watchdogs that we would have expected that that should have been, you know, um, rallying points uh, for all of us didn't do that job. That in these situations, and I, we all hope that we encounter them. Um, on very few occasions. And, and certainly, I mean, I'm, I'm 60 years old next year. I, I've actually never seen anything like this um, in my lifetime on a comparable level. I've never seen governments um, behave in what looks like a coordinated way to, you know, coerce, um, um, to, to coerce citizens to have um, a, a medical treatment. Um, I haven't I haven't seen that before. Um, when this does happen, um, then you as a citizen, you have three choices. Primarily, you can um, you, you, you can accept it, you can um, fight it or you can leave. 
Um, and those are the three choices that you face. And on a personal level, I couldn't accept it. Um, and uh, I didn't want to leave Canada, which is my home. Um, and so I'd chosen to fight it. Um, and, uh, and it's something I've had some experience of before. Um, so I felt I could at least, as a citizen, do my part and step up, if you like, and, and bring the experience that I'd had and, um, to the table and put some resources, financial resources to it and join with some others and try and challenge it. So we brought an application in December in the federal court in Canada um, to, um, to challenge the, the mandates that were brought in that required people to prove that they were vaccinated before being able to board federally regulated transport. And we filed that on Christmas Eve. Um, and we've gone about it in a particular way because, you know, with, with legal work like this, there, there's more than one strategy. And this is constitutional um, work as well. So there's a, you know, there's a legal dimension, a political dimension and a media dimension to all of this. Um, and we're trying to work um, all of those strategies into, um, into one that might work or have some effect. And you never really know with these whether you'll ever get to court. I think we sometimes have a romantic idea of what this might be. I think we all, you know, fortunately, most of us don't have a great deal of litigation experience, and that's a good thing. For those of us that do, we know that that romantic idea that we see in movies and TV of turning up in court and having your say and, and with some rousing music getting the right decision is not what actually happens. Um, and in the case of uh, an application, and then most of it's on paper. And what if we get to court, what we'll get to do is have lawyers pleading the legal side of it um, for five days in court in, in October is what will actually happen. There won't be any cross-examination of witnesses in court. There'll be none of, none of that will take place. All of that's already happened. But a key part of our strategy was to present the government with an array of expert witness, witnesses which would force them to do likewise. And, and I worry that when people are challenging these mandates in Canada, that people are heading off to court with hope in their hearts and wanting to argue just on the law and just plead the law out. And I think people have to be prepared to go to court with experts, and that can be expensive, to be able to flush the government out and to be able to make them produce some substantiation for their position. Because otherwise what you risk is um, a great deal of deference being given to the government by the court and not a great deal of challenge being brought against the government's position that somehow this is an emergency and they have to do everything they can to, to deal with it on behalf of uh, Canadians. Um, so we've taken a, a number of experts um, two former provincial health officers, um, two infectious diseases specialists, and uh, an expert in the transmission of pathogens in aircraft. Um, and the presentation of those very credible people, um, all of whom have been involved to some extent in this, uh, is this health issue or others, um, and none of whom could be easily classified as some kind of a renegade tinfoil hatter and all of the other derogatory uh, uh, labels that have been pinned on dissenters. Um, 
And that's forced the government to produce, well, they actually produced 15 witnesses, including some high, fairly high-level politicians and high-level doctors from Health Canada and from the Public Health Agency of Canada. And in the process of cross-examination over six weeks, and sometimes three days at a time with each of these witnesses, we were able to find some you know, interesting and very surprising aspects. And we've highlighted some of those. And you touched on it before, Liam, with the work we did with Jordan Peterson, and thanks to a journalist called Rupa Subramania, who has, um, along with a very, very small number of Canadian journalists, taken an interest in this case. There's absolutely been no mainstream media coverage until Rupa did her article on Barry Weiss's uh, common sense outlet in the US. And we've had to, Matthew, we've had to go to, we've had to work with the US to actually get the information about the case out because we couldn't get anything out in Canada. So Barry Weiss um, and her editors were very helpful and enabled us to do that. And that's shown that, you know, really in terms of the mandates that we're opposing, the government didn't actually have, they weren't following the science. They didn't have any science. In fact, they actually, two weeks before they were actually going to make a go live date on imposing the mandates, they were emailing each other and emailing the Public Health Agency of Canada asking for some science that they could use to support the imposition of the policy they were about to unleash on the Canadian public. So that's gone viral. It's gone all over the world. We've had lots of news coverage in other countries and it's forced ministers in front of committee to actually answer some questions. So if we never get to court, at least we got that far. Um, and where we are today is um, the government is playing what is a familiar game of legal hokey-cokey, um, which is using a, a, a device called mootness um, to uh, try to strike the proceedings. So this is this is less used in the states, a little bit in the states, and very commonly used in, in Canada. It's the idea that the government will impose a set of policies or measures, and then it will unilaterally withdraw them, and then claim that it's no longer an ongoing issue, and therefore the court doesn't need to consider it anymore. It's kind of like if you were in an abusive relationship and the person who was abusing you stopped for a little while, and then we decided it wasn't worthwhile considering the abuse they'd heaped on you before that. And that's how mootness works. Yeah, um, it, it's almost like the Constitution doesn't matter if the uh, speed at which uh, legal action takes place is too, is too slow to enforce that high standard for government action. Um, I, I was uh, watching a, a Meryl Nass um, discussion earlier today, um, and she's fantastic. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it occurred to me, that there's, you know, just like there's a velocity of money. Um, do you know that term, that phrase, yes. uh, velocity of capital? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the faster the velocity of capital, the less you need of it in an economy to make it work. Um, <clears throat> the, I feel like there's a concept that we need to, to discuss, which is velocity of law. And that uh, if what you have is a, you know, a centralized government, that the, that the only way a centralized government really works as a mechanism that that has protections for the people for the people outside of the government itself is if the velocity of law is fast enough for the process to take place before excessive harms are done it's a it's a it's a fantastic point you're raising and few people i've spoken to have and it's something that um, I've certainly been considering for a while and watching in Canada and it's been and the and the use of the velocity of law has been on the other foot in Canada 
So the government's been very familiar with the concept you're talking about, and it's moved extremely quickly to push inconvenient uh, restraints out of the way and to utilize lesser known areas of law. And the one that we're all familiar with that's been used and has been used at great velocity is the idea of an emergency. You know, that an emergency allows everything to happen. It does. It no longer matters. And this is the wartime footing I mentioned earlier. It's, the, it, it's a similar concept. We're at war. Therefore, you know, we, we have to use all of these measures to do that. And that's, you know, that's been used in this case. It's been used against uh, Canadians and against um, uh, citizens in the U.S. as well, state by state. And this is the wartime footing that is being adopted is certainly intentional. In fact, that was very much articulated by a number of not just Canadian leaders, but world leaders uh, in, in the sort of lockstep response to the pandemic. The, the discussion of getting into a wartime footing, I believe Prince, now King Charles, um, was one such person. And um, good timing. It's September 13th. Two days ago was the 21st anniversary, I believe, of, of, uh, of the 9-11 um, attack. And there's some similarities here in that the response to um, that event uh, also was in a under the veil of an emergency, which it clearly was. The issue is, I don't believe that emergency uh, uh, status has ever gone away. I believe the same um, legally speaking emergency that was declared for 9-11 that then led to things such as the Patriot Act and the mass spying on American and, and actually global citizens, um, the, the, the travel restrictions, actually, that I've grown up knowing nothing else, uh, but, you know, taking your shoes off at the, at the check-in and the liquids, you know, you can't bring your toothpaste on. Um, that emergency never went away. So I think with, they're two different situations, but thinking of it from that perspective, is there concern that had someone like you not come forward, and there are many who have in various uh, respects for various issues, but had someone like you not come forward for this travel restriction uh, and challenged it, do you think it is something that the government would have been perfectly happy to keep in place, similar to some of the measures that are still in place from 9-11? I think, yes, if it was politically expedient for them to do. Um, of course, there's always uh, politics and they're always privately polling all the time to see how public opinion is shifting. Policy just based on following public opinion is often very poor public policy. And that happens a lot. Um, and, you know, that's certainly happened in, in Canada. There's been a, a void of uh, good ideas and thinking around uh, this. The, and, and so that having set something rolling, then they've been polling to find out what people think about what they set rolling and then carrying on with it, regardless of whether it's the right thing to do or not. That's that's poor government. Right. It's even worse when there's a feedback loop with nudging experts uh, weighing in who understand how to continue to bend the public's opinion and will. Yeah, um, I, 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 don't know whether, I don't know whether it's worked though, Matthew. I mean, it, it, it could, there are arguments to say that what they've done is massively undermined trust in health institutions and massively undermined uh, trust in, um, in in government. I mean, it, 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 it isn't, I think, I think some of the politicians saw the vaccination campaigns as, uh, as one that would generate polarity. And I don't think it has. I think maybe initially it did that people felt they had to be for or against it. 
Um, but I think there's a lot more nuance and color to it than that. For example, if we look at Canada, there are maybe five or six million people across the all age brands who have chosen not to go along with this. And they've been subjected to all kinds of humiliation and degradation and insults and, and you know, culminating with the prime minister suggesting that Canadians might not want to tolerate them at all because we take up space. And she's language I've never heard. I, I've never heard that from a, from a Western leader in my lifetime. And I, I've never heard it until I heard Biden yeah, saying we, we've never similar heard things. It. And then it was everywhere. Yes. Yeah, right. That that's that's the thing that I think uh, is eventually helping a lot of people snap out of the the sort of hypnotized state, or uh, or to you know as they see, yeah, maybe they didn't think that their friends would be denigrated and dehumanized, but they're they're that's beginning to creep in with them also, or they've seen someone who's vaccine injured um, within their circle. Um, yeah, uh, it, it seems like you know what you said about um, you know people losing faith in government. Um, it seems like it's almost a one way street. It's it's not a majority still. I don't think. Uh, I, I think we're still. You know, there's a an undercurrent of economic fear that I think is keeping a lot of people pretty cemented, and they they might not even know it. I, I think that a lot of people are worried that the entire world economic climate is going to change. You know, perhaps the dollar is going to fail. Um, you know, the U.S. Uh, you know, well, the sanctions on Russia um, seem like an accelerant on that process, and now we have the BRICS nations: uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China. South Africa joined in and they have dozens of applicants around the world and people that they uh, do a lot of trade with. And, uh, and I think that that's actually part of the underlying problem. Um, and a, a lot of people don't know if they will be in on the inside, if they are not on the inside now. And so they're willing to say things and support things that they never would have considered. Economic fear, you know, dry, I think, um, you know, drives people whether or not they know it more than almost anything else. Yeah, I mean, for, for sure. I mean, um, it's hard to fully sort of, you know, um, assess the, the the importance of America in, in all of this, actually, um, in every respect. I mean, um, were it not for um, the robustness of the American institutions, and the argumentative nature of Americans generally and a political level, um, I, I think there was a risk that the world would, would have been overcome with this drive towards some kind of health-based um, autocracy. It's some kind. I, it's, I say I've never seen it, so I'm struggling to define it. I know you know we, we all read a lot about it and probably read too much about some of it. Um, and uh, we end up with information overload. But certainly watching America has been interesting in so far as whether it's the work that Ron DeSantis has done in Florida simply by just not going along with hardly any of it and standing his ground in the face of some of the worst uh, media ass assaults I've ever seen in my life. And um, just to go through that. But if, if America had just rolled over and gone with it, I think we'd be in a completely different place. Um, but um, even the changes in Canada uh, uh, and the information that is available in Canada comes from collaboration with the people with people in the US and outside Canada and certainly with the US. So I, I you were talking about constitutions earlier. Uh, when I was talking, I mean, you're talking with, with Jordan and, um, and 
he has this sense about the U.S. Constitution, which I think he's probably right, is that it was, you know, written by some, you know, hard-bitten old guys who were quite devious themselves and had a lot of experience and, and felt that at some point in the future, some men like themselves with the same level of intellect and capacity to be uh, challenging and devious would come along and challenge it. And so they wrote it in a way that made it hard to challenge. And it, it's you know, not not perfect, but the best example. In Canada, we have nothing like that. We we had a Bill of Rights, um, and now we have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And in my most cynical days, I look at it and think that maybe Pierre Trudeau went in and he instructed the lawyers to make sure you can get it on an A3 piece of paper so we can pin it on school walls, you know, and make and put some squiggly writing at the top so it looks like the Magna Carta. But, um, you know, and the content of it, um, ought to be philosophical and guiding. And there's a risk that it gets taken too literally, and we have something you don't have. We have a section of our constitution, section one, which essentially permits the government to roll everything out of the way if the courts allow it to do that. Um, so the ostensibly, what it says is that a government would need to be able to demonstra demonstrably justif justify as reasonable in a free and democratic society, their intention to uh, restrict your rights and freedoms. That's what it says, and it ought to be a high bar. And indeed, the Supreme Court of Canada have said it's a high bar. But when it's come to this, it's turned out to be a low bar. And we've had some very, very poor quality judicial decisions in Canada. You've seen some in the US, Matthew, as well, I know, and been following the, the decisions there very closely. Uh, but there have been some stronger ones also, and we haven't. We haven't. Uh, there we are. There's the. Hasn't got the squiggly writing, but it is on an A3 piece of paper, um, and it looks old because it's yellow. Um, <laughs> but in fact, it's from 1982, and I kind of dug into this and I tried to ask the Canadian great and good in the legal sector where Section One comes from, and and I've yet to get an answer. I, I, well, I, the, uh, the there remains an author. Uh, alive, uh, the Honorable Brian Peckford. Uh, have you had a chance to speak with him on this? Yeah, and, and I, I've emailed back and forth with Brian, and um, Brian had a, he, he was around at, at the time this was going on. I think there were other premiers that may have been more involved, actually. Mm. Um, and obviously, we talk a lot about Section 33, the so called notwithstanding clause. Um, which was largely, you know, a, a concession that was given by Pierre Trudeau to, I think, Peter Lougheed from Alberta, um, the time, and and then the, the 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 further concession that the premiers gave to Trudeau was allowing him to have a sunset clause in it. But and that clause allows uh, the government to set aside rights and freedoms using um, an act of government. And it has to be reviewed every five years. So technically, if that was, and it has been used on a number of occasions in Canada, but that's not the one that's being used here. It's not being used in our case because it doesn't include Section 6, mobility rights. Mm. So you, you can't use the notwithstanding clause, the Section 33. So the one that's, the test is Section 1, which is um, the one that I still can't find anybody who's able to tell me how it came about. And I've had people looking in the parliamentary library. I've 
had, uh, I've asked law professors, I've asked lawyers, I've asked politicians, um, and I don't have anybody who can tell me. Where I think it comes from is, is I think it comes, I think it might arise from the 1970s multinational signing of the International Covenant on Political and Civil Liberties. Yeah, a lot went on in the 1970s that seems like it was almost like planning for this moment. Uh, a lot of um, uh, the organizations that formed uh, with, um, you know, I, I don't know what better word to use, uh, but, you know, oligarchs, elites um, who got together and began to organize placement of their circle uh, within governments around the world. Like, um, and, and everybody thinks this is sort of like tinfoil, um, you know, hat type stuff, but the Trilateral Commission which formed in 1973. And you've got David Rockefeller saying there's no conspiracy here. We're doing everything we want to do out in the open. But, uh, you know, as of the next presidential ele election, out of 90 members of the Trilateral Commission in the U.S., a dozen wound up on Jimmy Carter's presidential cabinet. And then, you know, that, that presence remained into the Reagan presidency. And then it, it pretty much hasn't uh, abated in terms of influence. And, and it feels like when you look around the world, a lot of, you know, sort of international things happened and, you know, the, the um, chartering of rights and treaties um, seem, it seemed, there's a very few people that seem to have very strong fingers in those pots, strong influence uh, on the outcomes. So can you read section one for me? I'm not, uh, I, you know, my, I, I've seen this document um, a few times, but I haven't, you know, stopped and thought about exactly which parts matter. And now I'm thinking, you know, I'm hearing sections one, six, 33, but read section one for us. I'm, I'm just pulling it up right now for us again. Um, okay. Oops. Let's see here. So is this a, this is guarantee of rights and freedom section one. Is that right, Carl? Yes. It's very short. Okay. So one, the Canadian charter of rights and freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So, yeah, it, it, it's a flowery statement. It, it's, it's a wonderful principle, um, but it's so vague. It's so vague yeah. that it seems uh, extremely difficult to use uh, in, in you know, legal institutions like as part of rule of law. Uh, and I used to think that parts of the U.S. Constitution were vague, but that seems even more so like, you know, who decides what demonstrably justified means and and how long can it take to to get there through the courts? Or what free and democratic society means, frankly. Even that, I, I hear robust debate about what the word democratic means in, in the context of is, is are, are the systems we have in you know, the United States, Canada, former Commonwealth countries, are these democracies at all? Um, or have we completely misused these terms and misunderstood what kind of functioning society we have? Because Carl, as you mentioned, these rights can be waived at any time. And um, it it seems more, what it seems like we're getting at is it, it seems more like a, a, a tool for government than a protection for the populace. And what I'm wondering is if we've simply never encountered a situation until now where this has been used on, on, on such a large scale and in such a context that sort of makes it clear that this is, you know, this ain't freedom. Um, I don't know. I, and it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, 
I think this just to slightly sort of segue into how these things can be used. I mean, if if we look, so I spent a lot. I spent like nearly four decades in business. Okay, and and I'm used to looking at contracts. Um, and like lots of people, I'm used to looking at contracts at various times in different ways. Like how how can I enforce one? How can I drive a train through one? Right? I'm, I'm kind of looking away. So when I when I when I see words like that on 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 paper, if how you perceive those words will depend on your intention, and intention is really important here. Um, and when words are written with high ideals and with um, good intention, then that doesn't necessarily take account of charlatans that might come later, right? And 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 I think, and I unashamedly say this, I think we have a charlatan for a prime minister in Canada um, and surrounded by um, people who perhaps don't have respect for the charter. So if you have respect for the constitution of your country, you probably view those words in one light, if you don't, you might view them in another, and particularly where we come to where we are today, where we have governments more and more uh, under the influence of corporations, and corporations are not democracies. I mean, they might look like they are, or they might use nice words to make out that the employees have uh, more rights than they do, but employees, but corporations are dictatorships. It's do as I say, not not as I do. That's what corporations work on. So if that influence, if that um, pos position is being pushed into government, where you've got these public-private partnerships around health products, then maybe the government's getting help at looking at words in, in constitutions and looking at how it might drive a train through them. Because certainly what I've encountered in court and what I've encountered in dealing with the government on this is somebody thought this through. This isn't, this wasn't, uh, you know, somebody had spent a lot of time thinking about it. It wasn't something they just made up on the hoof, right? And we saw that in the, in our case, it came out, of course, that whilst the Prime Minister of Canada was saying in the late spring of 2021, when he was still sounding like a reasonable man, and when he was saying there will be a vaccine for any Canadian who wants one, we now know that they were putting in place a team of people who had already started drafting the mandates that they put in place later. So that literally a few weeks later, he completely changed his position, announced some mandates and called an election and then set off with a wedge issue towards the fall. So, you know, we people have been looking at um, the law very carefully and how they can get through it and how they can use it to their advantage. It's not innocent at all, sadly. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you started talking about corporations. Uh, there's something that's gone on in the world for, um, you know, for you, you could argue decades or you could argue centuries where uh, corporations seem to be gaining more and more power relative to the citizens. And they are not held to the same standards as citizens. Uh, when corporations commit crimes, nobody goes to jail. Um, but, you know, you can go back several hundred years. Um, you know, right now, the West seems to be showered with this sort of propaganda, making everyone feel like they're responsible for the crimes of corporations, as I view it. Um, <clears throat> you go back into colonial history, the East India companies, you know, uh, the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company, uh, early 1600s, um, you know, they, they sort of separate themselves from the government. They're sort of given, uh, you know, free reign to govern themselves by the crowns that chartered them. 
And, and I think that they that they sought to further and further separate themselves, because if you don't have to abide by the same standard as anyone that you're competing with, and I think we should view it as competition, um, you know, corporations versus, you know, the people doing, you know, market business uh, in the world. Um, and, and it was the corporations that went and did that, you know, essentially all of Europe had uh, ended slavery by that time. And yet these corporations went around the world and established slave colonies all over. You know, it was clear that um, that they were not operating on the same rules uh, from essentially the very start. And we've never quite dealt with that problem, right? Uh, it's not the same capitalism as the capitalism in your community. You know, it's not the same. Every, every standard, every word means something different almost. And every legal standard is different. And that has a, allowed itself to invisibly um, invisibly go by without a great challenge until a moment like this, when it feels like the entire Western system is threatened by this, I, I don't know what it is, schism or coup or takeover. It, it, it's at least what it feels like. It's a great, so it's a really good observation, I, I think. And um, if you think about back to the time that you were talking about, and the, and the British did do this. I mean, the British, the, the empire was built a, on, on a contract a contracting basis where you'd have a company in a country and it would be supported by the army of the king and you'd wait, you know, the, the king would get a get something out of it and he would support the company in running that country. So Canada was, you know, a, a, a company, Lord Astor's company and, and, you know, based on fur trading and so on and so forth, but it was an exploitation of a, of, a, of, a, of somewhere else. And that corporatize, I mean, maybe with a country like Canada, maybe that corporatization of the country has, it's pervasive and maybe it's carried on a long time. And maybe there's still a bit of that in the culture, you know, that really that that's, that's what goes on. But I mean, I, there's, this, there's a very short story I tell, which kind of was my, I mean, I've had a bunch of political awakenings dealing with politicians over the years, to be frank. Uh, but there's one which really kind of, I remember, um, was it, it didn't exactly break my political virginity, but it certainly it, it, it certainly was a, an eye opener. And I was introduced to a British prime minister um, at the time by a trade union, and I went along to uh, one of these sort of town halls that um, they would do quite a, you know where the prime minister would go to see the union. It was a Labour prime minister go and sit on the stage, answer questions from union members from the audience, and. Um, and I was introduced to the prime minister by the leader of that union and I and met the prime minister on his way in. I was taken to one side by the prime minister's um, uh, officials and aides and they took me into a small room and they said, we told you've got a question for the prime minister. And I said, I have. And they said, what's the question? And and I told them the question and they wrote it down and I'd been prepared for what was coming next. because And they, they said, and what answer do you think the prime minister should give? And I said, I would have thought he might say this. And then I went and sat out in the audience. And then 45 minutes later, I watched a man with a union T-shirt ask the prime minister my question. And I watched the prime minister of England, prime minister of the UK, give my answer. And I went to the pub after that with the people I was with. And I remember saying, and it's, it's for, you know, in a way that it it's kind of res resonates with now. I remember saying in the pub over a beer, I remember saying, wow, I mean, if an idiot like me can get that to happen, imagine what Bill Gates can get to happen, right? And and I think that's, that's you know, we all know this, but I think for a lot of people, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's not clear exactly how much influence 
we are actually allowing corporations now to have in government. And it's become overwhelming. And the key issue has become the wealth gap again, which, Matthew, you just touched on with the empire. Remember, back when that was going on, the wealth gap was massive. It was enormous. And now we're there again. We have people on the planet who are, I mean, worth amounts of money that are difficult to comprehend. And I saw Elon Musk trying to deal with it the other week um, somewhere, talking about how long it would take to count a million dollars one a second and count a billion dollars one a second. I don't, you've probably seen this, but it's it was him trying to get across that people don't really know how rich he is and, and from a, appreciating the negativity of that. And a million dollars takes you 12 weeks to count and a billion dollars takes you 31 years to count. Oh my gosh. And, and a quarter of a billion dollars takes you 8,000 years to, a quarter of a trillion dollars, as he has, takes you 8,000 years to count, right? And that wealth gap we now have means that we have a small number of people who are in control of such vast amounts of capital that I believe it's extremely easy for them to influence governments of people who, quite frankly, are very modestly paid, often modestly skilled, and easily fall prey to manipulation from these people. And I think that exists in Canada to a high degree. Right. And, no. and this is why I go back several centuries in that discussion of the corporations, because, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, why is it that the wealth gap, um, you know, happened in the US, and there are going to be a lot of people who immediately start talking about China, and the inflation of the Chinese economy. But even before the inflation of the Chinese economy, you go back to, okay, well, there were the opium wars in the 1800s. Well, let's go back before that. Um, when uh, when Europeans started getting around uh, you know, Cape Horn in Africa and started establishing, you know, networks in in Africa, and India, and then Southeast Asia, and eventually, uh, and this is about the time that uh, you know the British and the Dutch were were kind of ruling the the trade waters. Um, that that you know trade in China, um, you know, as of the early 1600s, um, China had a minority ruling population, uh, the Manchu, the Manchurians. Uh, there were only 120,000 of them. And because of instability in the Han, uh, the previous Han Empire, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the Qing Dynasty uh, that took over was, was probably something that was bound to be unstable were it not for the trade relationships that came in from like the British East India Company. And so, you know, I, I actually, I speculate that, that, you know, through the 1700s, uh, probably the, the East India Company's understood that they were propping up a minority government that was outnumbered you know hundreds to one in a sense and 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 may have even planned to use that during the 1800s and essentially they just knocked down china in the 1830s and then in the 1860s and then you know around night a little after 1900 you have uh you know the last emperor uh Pinyi, who was like six years old when he abdicated or something like that and then and then you you basically have western rule of china and then and then, you know, what happened with Mao and Chiang Kai-shek, the State Department gave Mao a pile of money, which seems, you know, sort of counter to what you think of as, as what, what we display as Western principles. And then suddenly everything in the area just seems to be British and then American controlled in, in ways that you really have to dig into. Right. And, and then suddenly 18, you know, suddenly the 1970s. When we see a lot of these international groups get together, that's exactly the moment when when the West decides to start reinflating China. And then you have the situation where the West begins to bifurcate in terms of wealth. 
Um, there's, you know, it's almost like a, a line cut in half. The West is cut in half. And a lot of people don't know this, but if you take like the American economy, for instance, the GDP divided by the number of workers, the average worker, average, the mean is like $270,000 per worker, which sounds extraordinary because that would put you in the top 2%. And in terms of wealth earners, but, you know, the mean and the median are two very different things. And when you realize that disparity, when you realize that the that the average productivity is, you know, it, it, above a quarter of a million dollars, and then you look at median, uh, you know, household earnings, and it's more like, you know, 70 something, or uh, I, I don't know what, what the actual number is, but the median worker may be at 50 and the median household may be at 80. Um, and you realize uh, that that this differential led to um, a, a situation where very few people have much political power at all. And now we see something like the velocity of law standing in the way of dealing with some moment like this. And it like understanding all that, which I, I've, I've done a lot more reading on history the last two years than I ever had before. But, um, you know, understanding all that you know, makes me it makes it harder for me not to feel like we're in some sort of a planned moment and, uh, and, and, and that the economics of it are, are really what's, what's driving it underneath, not, uh, not any type of uh, virus that's out and about, which probably, you know, probably would have gone endemic and probably the, the, the spike protein probably just would have faded away into, to nothingness because it's not supposed to be there. And there are all these other coronaviruses in the swarm and they're, they're probably going to, you know, assert dominance again, because, um, you know, they're the more, evolutionarily stable things but but we we created this panic and and now it's it's a giant economic battle and uh you know I'm, I'm glad there are people like you who are willing to step forward and and you know um try to push through some sort of action of law because it feels like the more expensive we can make any step on them or the number of wins that we make uh, at the very least slow down the process so that perhaps there's some way for the world to reorganize and reassess what's going on. And I think that that truly the people in the East and the West um, would probably come together in understanding that they're all sort of captured by the same system. Yeah, I I, I think what you're saying is fascinating. And, and we're at the start of something. I, I don't think we're, you know, and it, it, look, I mean, because somebody's very rich or very powerful doesn't mean they're not incapable of making terrible mistakes. In fact, many of them do all of the time like everybody else. So it's quite possible that they've overplayed their hand with this. And we keep saying they, and I wonder sometimes who they is. And I think the fact that we use that, when there's, you know, and I, and I keep, and we, I mean, who is we? It's people who are investigating it, looking around, trying to make sense of it, rather than just going along with it, is perhaps who we is. They is, I don't think it's a mystery. I think it's a collection of politicians and business people who, you know, work together as a as habit. I think what happened in Canada was quite extraordinary right at the start. And you've probably seen some of this, Matthew, in the States as well from some of the language of certain politicians there. But our deputy prime minister, um, at the early days of this, almost as soon as it had got off the ground because they didn't want to waste the moment. And all of these guys love that. You know, that silly thing. I don't know whether Rahm Emanuel said it or whoever said it, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste and and they wheeled this one around like you know they bludgeon you with this one right all the time but it just got started and she was publicly saying um there's a great political opportunity has arisen here and that i found that i heard that as soon as she said it and i found it incredibly jarring i thought hang on 
stop for one second. You, you're telling us we're in a terrible, it's a terrible health crisis here. Surely it's all hands on deck to deal with the health crisis. You've got time to find a political opportunity in this. Um, it sounded callous. It sounded shallow. Um, and it sounded as though it had been thought through. Um, and I found it very disturbing. Yes. And, and, you know, I think we do have to be careful. I have a couple of thoughts. The first being the concept of us and them, I think, is part of the issue we yeah. have to tackle. I think, I think, in my opinion, at least the approach I've chosen to take is there is no division between, you know, groups of humans. It's essentially humanity. We are humanity. And what we're fighting against are simply some of the worst parts of our own humanity. And then of course, there are those who actively participate and that's where you can start to get more nuanced and say, well, we have people who are committing certain actions, perhaps crimes, perhaps just things we don't want to encourage. So thinking of it less as the good guys and the bad guys and more the next positive step in human uh, societal evolution, perhaps, but also um, then moving on to Christian Freeland. Yes, our deputy. I, I think Prime can, I, can I? Can I? Can I? Uh, can we stay there for a moment? Because I think that what you just said is is crucially important on on numerous levels. Um, a lot of these artificial divisions in society, and people probably immediately think things like partisanship and race. But I, I actually, um, I, I I wrote an article maybe six months ago or sometime. Where, um, where I said, you know, you, you've got to look at the game theory of the situation. You've got to look at like the evolution of human human society. I think part of what the corporations allowed for is for um, is for a sifting process of psychopathic personalities <laughs> or toward the power levels there, and that ultimately um, we we have to sort of recognize that within the tribe there are minority personality types that are almost like role players, right? Um, like, uh, like on average, uh, the, like the Dunbar number of the tribe, 150 to 300 people, you know, living in a society, uh, understanding each other on a personal level. Um, and, and that's what sort of defined, um, you know, the, the ancient tribe size. And, you know, th there was on average a little more than one psychopath at a time, judging by today's percentages. On average, a little more than one, you know, schizotypal personality at a time. Um, you know, perhaps these are sort of role players. Perhaps um, there, there's almost the same way we think of our of our genes being passed down. There is like a community evolution almost, and that perhaps what humanity needs to do is find a way to reintegrate those people who would who have a, you know there's something different in their brain going on. They, they they don't have the same qualms as the average person. They don't have the same input empathy to govern their relationships and they need to be governed by the tribe in order not to destroy things because they don't have this idea of I should stop here or you know they, they don't have the same emotional attachment to other people when they see them getting hurt I think that you know maybe of course there are criminals that need to be punished hopefully that can be done it rarely is but after that, if society could be reorganized, I think even those others should be, we should find a way to bring them back into the tribe because the only way to move forward is if you have the entire evolutionary unit. And that's something we have to figure out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that makes a great deal of sense. I mean, and the, nor, we, we've developed a system which ordinarily we hope and be successful in preventing certain character types from actually getting their fingers on the levers of power. And once in a while, you get periods of time when that happens and plausible um, 
and of course, it, you know, if we if we're getting into psychopathy and sociopathy, then plausibility is really important <laughs> because that's what enables those people to get in in the first place. You know, that if you take a sociopath as somebody who is learning how to be a human being by watching them, then they um, then 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 they have they have a plausibility, and that's what gets in under the radar, and that's a that's a risk I think when you 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 get characters like that that find themselves making it towards the top of the heap um, and and in fact getting there and I mean without going too far yeah, I, I when I start looking at some of the characters around and you look for normal human traits and if I look at our prime minister I'm going to, controversial or not I'll say it I, I look for regular traits that you want to see in somebody and where you see fake empathy and a lack of sense of humor and all of those kind of things then you start to put two and two together and maybe this isn't an entire person that you want running your country you know and is also <laughs> going to be somebody who is extremely easy to is a very poor very poor moral compass if one at all very very poor uh ability to um you know follow any kinds of principles very easy to manipulate and particularly very easy to manipulate by very high level corporate uh, yeah and if you ever raise something like a king to sort of be one step above the law to be able to settle something that's otherwise unsettleable you never want to select those people for that job that's right yeah. and, and you do liam I, liam I interrupted you i don't know if you if you wanted to move on to your I, I stopped you in the middle of a point because I yeah. wanted to. No, that's okay. Uh, and that does segue nicely because, you know, I often get the sense that Christian Freeland pulls far more strings than Justin Trudeau does. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily even, you know, if you have a big organization, you don't want uh, somebody at the very, very top necessarily having 100% of, of the power. You want a good deputy. So in that sense, it's not all that surprising to think that Christian Freeland may indeed uh, you know, hold sway that 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 we don't always see. In this instance, you did see it. And what is concerning is the fact that, uh, you know, some still don't want to think about it this way or would push back on what it means. But Christian Freeland is very much uh, close to all of these corporate interests. Uh, she is quite literally on the board of trustees for the largest uh uh, how do I say industry corporate organization uh, that do, that is not accountable to anything other than itself, the World Economic Forum, which people interpret, I think maybe they give more weight to than it has, or perhaps a different weight. But the point being, uh, this is someone who has explicit um, values that supersede Canada's, or at a minimum, uh, a value system that best case scenario operates alongside those of the country she's running the sovereign nation um and then the third thing i wanted to say was uh yes so then getting into the political um in terms of political solutions because i think in terms of being a citizen uh engaging in solutions it's been a long period over the last year and a half certainly for me of figuring out which front is the best to focus on and what it's overwhelmingly come to is we have to address issues everywhere they occur that includes the court of law that includes at the ballot box that includes in our interpersonal relationships and in the end that's when you realize it truly just is about being a role model for how to live your life better such that others are inspired to then do the same lead by example but specifically on the ballot box issue We've just had a fairly major um, election here in Canada. 
uh, we have a new uh, leader for really the, I guess we have three significant political parties um, and uh, we have a new leader for one of them, our conservative party. And it was uh, a very decisive victory for Pierre Polyev. I believe it was 67, just shy of 68% of the votes went to him, which is very interesting um, because to me, it sort of leaves no room for uh, question as to what the voter base wanted. So I suppose what I'm introducing now is I'm not seeking political opinions. What I am wondering is to what degree can the uh, victor of an election or the the act of voting for somebody in this case we you know voting someone into power here to what degree is that a solution to what degree do we feel confident that an individual even if they say the right things or they they come across the right way or a charismatic how much confidence do we have that that change can be made in that uh arena if that makes sense i i think i mean just Moving back just a second onto the Christia Freeland point, and it mm. relates very much to this point, is um, at the moment we have a situation in Canada which is really unusual, and we have a Minister of Finance who is also the Deputy Prime Minister. There is no good need. There is no uh, that there is no wholesome reason for that to be the case. The only possible reason that that is the case is because there is a, um, a, a, a malign or semi-malign plan with regard to those two roles being joined. Although, because the Deputy Prime Minister, as you said, Liam, is, it's, it's a different role. It's intended to, it, it, provide, it provides a different level of counsel for the Prime Minister if it's a proper, if it's a good appointment, it could provide, it provides somebody to step in. Um, but the, the two are not connected and they're direct and they're in conflict of interest because the Ministry of Finance, the Minister of Finance's decision should be scrutinized by both the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister. And the idea would be that you would have differing opinions. I think it's very suspicious and very unusual and very odd that somebody is in those two roles. It's removed a level of scrutiny, and that's very, very deliberate. It's it, been it's, done for a reason. The, the the fusing of those two roles is what you would expect to see if there is some plan for a major economic shift, such as central bank digital currencies, for instance. Yeah. And we, yeah. we know like the U.S. Fed, um, I, I saw this last year, I think, maybe a year and a half ago. Um, I think I think that someone was hired into the role, but like the, the U.S. Federal Reserve um, had uh, they, they were seeking a person with, uh, you know, cryptocurrency background and experience. Who also had, you know, the the relative the, the the requisite finance experience to, you know, bring into the Fed, and they hired someone. I forget her who her name is, but um, you know, clearly those moves have been made uh, during the pandemic, and it looks, you know, more. And a lot of people are stating it very frankly that they want to move toward a central bank digital currency system. And already, most of our most of um, you know the money in the world at this point is already digital. Um, but you know, the thing that would be added on to this would be you know, surveillance and, uh, and the ability to censor, uh, to censor transactions, to censor people, to shut individual people down if they're not perhaps you know, following along with the plan as a good citizen, whatever that plan might be. Um, it's just a, uh, an exceptional centralization of power at a moment at which we can see very clearly that we have uh, a problem with people who are above the law corporations or otherwise.
Yeah, I mean, for sure. You, you the touch on your other point, Liam, on, on the election of uh, the choice of Pierre Polyev as the Conservative leader with such a uh, such a, a, a strong majority at 68% on a first round ballot. And the Conservative Party of Canada has a quite a complex way of electing its um, leader um, in terms of ridings and points and, and multiple ballots and multiple choices on a ballot form. For, so for somebody to emerge in the first round of the ballot with such an, a very, very high uh, majority is very, very strong. It's a strong indication. You can see by the so you can see by the response of the government in Canada straight away. You can see the immediate sort of panic set in. It was not the choice they wanted. It and it's two reasons. I mean, for, firstly, is that uh, Trudeau is a poor debater. He's a he lack, as I said, he lacks humor. He's he's used to use, using talking points in the House of Commons and indeed walks out of the House of Commons when he doesn't like the question. So Polyev has demonstrated an ability to push Trudeau's buttons in the past and, and he'll do it again. And that's what they don't like. They know it's an uncontrollable issue now for them, particularly in question period in the House of Commons. It's going to be very difficult for Trudeau to actually handle him. And that does go out on mainstream media. So people are going to see Trudeau in a different light. So that's that's one of the important points. And the second one is really they're seeing a shift in the people that are looking, uh, they're seeing disquiet amongst their own people in the Liberal Party in Canada. There's some recent polls, 9% of people only are strongly approving of Trudeau. And in the 2021 election, whilst, you know, he ostensibly polled 33%, then of the total electorate, because of the low turnout, he actually polled only 18% of the total electorate to become prime minister. That's not normally a sustainable position, you know, to have such a weak mandate. Um, it's very, very different in the States where it's two parties and you've got this kind of rough 50-50 split and a percent or two decides it one way or the other. The idea of having a prime minister in office with the levers of power with 18% of the total electorate actually having voted for him and 9% of people strongly approving and his overall approval rating at 35 or 37% now, that's that's not looking good. And there ought to be people in the Liberal Party in Canada looking closely at that and thinking, maybe this guy's had his time. How do we deal with that? And who do we replace him with? Um, and so th there's a lot going on at the moment, and we'll see how it unfolds in the coming weeks. But anything that forces the government to think is good. Anything that forces them to be less authoritarian is good. Anything that forces them to be less corrupt is good. And that seems to be what's happened with uh, this recent leadership change. There's a lot of um, young people who are very uh, concerned in Canada. And I think that uh, Polyev's finding new voters. Um, and I think he's likely to start eating the lunch of some of the other parties quite soon. Um, so I think they're very, very worried about him. It's not the outcome they wanted. Um, it is the outcome that people wanted if you wanted change. Um, so, mm, yeah, with his with his runner up being Jean Charest, um, who is a career politician. And I've frankly heard, you know, incredibly strong support for him and also condemnation for a number of things. Um, so the point being, I think you're totally right uh, uh, for for such a presumably strong candidate to come so far in second certainly shows something new. There's also an interesting 
people people in the most of the news are are calling there's something very strange happening they're calling pierre polyev a fascist they're referring to him in the same terms as they were and in fact often comparing him directly to donald trump and I sort of scoff at that because I, I guess I just don't know what people's definition of fascism is. But also, it is interesting, the comparison that uh, indeed Pierre Polyev as a candidate, as you say, was reaching out to voters who, who don't generally vote, uh, largely newer, younger, but also um, disillusioned, perhaps. Um, I'll say I voted for three different federal parties in the past three occasions to do so. And that to me, I wonder if there are more people like me, you know, 20 somethings who are just starting to understand the good and bad of how the world works and who are finding themselves not identifying as a liberal, not identifying as a conservative, not identifying with, you know, variations thereupon as far as, far as labels go, but more so beginning to identify, well, what what is actually affecting my life and who is there somebody obviously causing it? And if so, who's the one who has the best solutions to do so? Um, I, I'll say I always cringed at the idea of voting conservative for no reason other than that's how I grew up and that's just what I thought. That's no longer the situation I'm in. So I, I, I just found it interesting, the comparisons to Donald Trump, I don't think in personality, but in, in terms of the reaching out, the, the similarities in the run up to the 2016 surprise election of Donald Trump, where he did do similar things and, and skip the mainstream media, focus on direct to supporters, large rallies. Um, but the difference being, of course, it was a surprise in 2016, whereas I watched the event uh, uh, on Saturday and everyone was keenly aware Polyev was going to take it. So there was no surprise this time. It's just very interesting to observe, I suppose. Yeah, the labeling, uh, the, the, especially the, the term fascism, which is being used all over uh, in the West as a charge for against um, mostly uh, people in opposition parties, um, uh, meaning opposition to the party that seems to be closest to the corporations at the moment, which kind of flipped over the years. I think a lot of people missed the flip. Like, for instance, uh, in the U.S., uh, Wall Street, you know, if you go back to 1980, Wall Street's mostly Republican. Um, these days, you know, 95 percent of the leadership uh, is aligned with the Democratic Party. And uh, during the you know mortgage bond crisis era, I would say the run up to the mortgage bond crisis era um, uh, in the wake of the long term capital management collapse and all that, there was a lot of um, financial weaponry used uh, that caused a lot of, you know, sort of forced alignment. Um, and you have the hiring of all of the Ivy League students. You know, um, Wall Street hires primarily from four schools. And, uh, and if you can um, bend to the politics there at that level, you know, prior to the hiring process, then you make it very, very difficult um, to resist something like a, a polarization change at, at that level. But I think, I think, you know, talking about young people, um, I, one, I, I'm going to mention this. Uh, I looked at our YouTube stats the other day, and it struck me that almost all of our viewers are 40 to 70 years old. Hmm. And yeah, you know, when I when I left finance, uh, my career was in working with young people. You know, I helped build schools and and write curriculum and textbooks. Um, and, and so I always think of myself as communicating more with younger people. And then suddenly I'm communicating more with people who are older than myself. And I'm realizing that that the twenty somethings are mostly not there. And, and Liam, you know, you're you're um, uh, are sort of a rare counterexample to that um, as somebody who's who's taken a position of leadership within your community. 
to be to talk about these things. But I, I think 20 somethings and, and 30 somethings, they need to hear this message. There is something that you can do. A lot of the like, um, you know, the brightest, you know, academic minds, they get hired up and swept up into these big tech firms and uh, and, and um, consulting corporations and whatnot. Um, it, it, it's very flattering. It's um, you know, they're lavished with money. Um, but but then at the at the other end, they don't know what that they can do on their own. We're not teaching them to make their own businesses so much as if you do make your own business, it's to be bought out by one of these corporations, right? Yep. Young people, I think it, yeah, it, this is a key. We need them to understand you can build the economy outside of those people. You can build the parallel economy that can grow and supplant. When you look around the world, whenever we've had two side-by-side -side nations, um, you know, split, split the population, Korea, Germany, wherever, um, it, it's the people who were more free who did the most. And, uh, and I think that, that there is a degree to which younger people, especially with their you know, powerful grasp of technology, you know, they can lead a charge in sort of unwinding, like working around the current system in order to make technology something that is symmetric, not asymmetric, um, that something that can diffuse power and not centralize it. And I think young people need to hear that no matter what we do, um, you know, no matter what I write about, no matter what legal actions are taken, uh, if, if we don't have the young people believing in their agency to affect the future, then we're probably not going to get you know, much of anywhere. So I, I want young people to hear about that. I hope somebody, you know, will send this video to someone younger that they know and, and say, you know, um, uh, you know, do so find, find a, a, an economic feedback loop you know, that allows you to build that company that that is the thing that you think about and understand best that other people don't yet. But um, <clears throat> we can we can knit our networks together, but it needs to be all of society, you know, not, you know, uh, right now, it, it's mostly um, the, the older crowd in our societies that are doing the most to push back against authoritarianism, unless there's something the younger people are doing that's invisible and we're not seeing yet. But I wish they'd let us know. Yeah, I, I, I'll just say that. Then I want to pass to Carl. I, I'll say that I, I have to give credit to many silent people. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I lost 99% of the people in my life when I, it was simply for, I, I've always been, you know, I don't like being told what to do, but I lost everyone around me for doing so in this instance with some very specific exceptions. And those people, um, similar in age to me, some younger, some slightly older. Um, I, I think I, I see a little bit what you're talking about, which is when I'm having conversations with them, um, we're on the same page about everything, the, the, the factual basis of, of situations, even sort of the proposed, you know, where we'd like to be aiming. But the language that comes from one side of the discussion tends to be in terms of someone else doing something. Um, and I don't see it as laziness. I see it as that's just uh, uh, what we've been used to. Uh, and also that goes for any, I think, any uh, generation of 20-somethings. We're, we're still in the age that's coming out of people literally doing everything for us just by nature of our age. So there's something very interesting there. And I think what has to be gotten past is the notion that what people think about you matters or uh, at least on its face that that is the most important metric 
Um, being unpopular socially for the short term, I think, needs to become something that people aren't afraid of anymore. And unfortunately, um, we've we now, I think, can look back and see how um, I, I hate the term woke politics because I don't think it accurately captures what I'm talking about. But people do use that term to describe what I'm trying to talk about, which is the narrowing of acceptable views. Uh, I think that that has never made sense. I think it's it's something that we have to now, as I mentioned before, lead by example, be better uh, role models, um, because people aren't hateful. Generally, I in my experience, people are much smarter than they're given credit for and overwhelmingly more capable than they give themselves credit for. And Carl, you and I had a lovely coffee a, a couple of months ago, and you you said you, you actually you said something similar to Matthew, but you also then pointed out that it seems like actually a lot of the older generation that should have known better didn't do anything early on, perhaps. Do you see that changing now? Do you still feel like there is a over or under representation of, of people standing up for each other? Yes. Um, I, I One of the most disappointing issues that I saw in COVID actually was the lack of bravery and courage amongst a lot of people of my generation. So I'm kind of one of the last years of the boomers. I'm 1963. Um, and I, I think that if you're going to lead, you need to demonstrate it. You need to actually do that. Can't just be fearful. I mean, I saw people of my age who would have crawled over the sort of beaten bodies of young people to get some injection in their arm, thinking they could carry on with their idyllic lifestyle for another 20 years. I, I do think that there's a point where we've come with, where there's, there's almost this non-acceptance of mortality going along. And you get to my age and you start having to face up to you deal, to deal with that, right? Life doesn't go on forever. But I think we've got this idea that life does, you know, there's a certain set of got life, you know, they've done this, they've got the easy life and everybody else can go to hell in a handcart and I'm going to do whatever it is to keep mine going. And I think that, that I just saw this lack of courage and I thought it, it probably was seen badly by a lot of young people. I have a 25-year-old son and I have a 14-year-old daughter. So I've got some access to this um, and also i've been an employer a long time so i've always employed a lot of a lot of young people but the disengagement comes when the leadership fails you know if the leadership looks like it's staggering around and making mistakes then it doesn't attract it's not it's not very attractive i mean also activism in amongst you i mean it was easier when i when i was when i was so if i think back to being in the sort of 19 end of the 1970s and early 1980s when i was sort of you know a young i, I was probably more left of center and i was out on the street so i would be out and i was out being baton charged by the police in london in the poll tax riots in the in the 1980s and things like this right um you know, and and that kind of activism, there was no social media, there's no phones, and then nothing. If you're going to be an activist, you can't be a keyboard warrior. You actually have to go out there and do it, and you have to turn up, and you've got to take part. Some of that's gone, um, I think, and we've replaced it with we've replaced it with social media, which has also brought in this issue of whether we're liked, whether we're popular all the time, caring about what other people think, not really necessarily forming your own views. I don't damn young people for it at all. I, I, find, I would find it very confusing. I hear it from people. You know, not everybody you know, has a, you know, is doing the sort of thing that you're doing, Liam. Um, uh, and not everybody should should be, perhaps. 
it, it's a real challenge. But I think in Canada, Pierre Poilievre, he's 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 activating young people. I think I think he's making them think. And if you think back to how Trudeau got elected in Canada in 2015, he was doing something similar. He he managed. He motivated. Uh, young people at that time with a different set of values and a different uh, set of uh, policies and ideas that he was putting across that got young people out to vote for him. And he was elected, but, you know, he did well. Um, Guilty. The <laughs> there you go, right? And the Conservatives missed it. Yeah, they didn't see it coming. They were warned by Brian Mulroney, but they didn't see it and they missed it. And now I don't think Trudeau's people, having used that in the past, I don't think they're about to make that mistake again by not recognizing the threat that Poliev makes sets out for them in that he's a younger guy. He's got a young family. He's got a young wife. He's got the different message. He's talking about one thing that matters to young people in Canada, much as anything is where am I going to live and how am I going to afford it? Right. And that's a really, really important, really important issue in Canada right now. House, you know, home prices are wildly, wildly overvalued in Canada to the benefit of my generation and not to not to not to young people. And that's a really important point. So I, I think you're right, Matthew. You know, we whether we on we, we sit here talking listened to by 40 to 70 year olds. Um, and that's not good enough, is it? You know, we all want people, you know, younger people to take part and listen and and understand what and take part in what in the future really that's what it's about and and, and, and if they're not going to take part in the same way it's okay you know they the young people are dynamic they find you know lots of ways to to do their own thing um well, well carl can you can you um can you give us a summary once again for anybody who, who may have joined in and, and and i think a lot of people have, have come in uh since the very beginning of our conversation can you give us like a uh, a one minute summary to help uh, close our conversation out of of what it is, what your actions are, how it is that you are um, uh, stepping up uh, to the government and saying this is wrong. Yes, so said I'm a Canadian citizen who believes that the uh, forcing people to do something against their will um, by having to have an injection that they don't want in order to return to normal life or to have a job or to travel is entirely wrong. So I've challenged that with uh, um, another similar-minded person uh, on behalf of many millions of like-minded people in the federal court. Um, that action has been going on since December of 2021. Um, and we've um, presented evidence from um, five experts. In our case, the government has been had 15 witnesses, which we've cross-examined, and that whole process has all ended. Um, we filed our uh, final pleadings with the court. The government will file its pleadings with the court early in October, and we ought to go to a five-day uh, hearing in the federal court in Ottawa on the 31st of October. In the meantime, the government is um, uh, has, made a, has filed a motion to dismiss the challenge on the grounds that it's now moot. It's not no longer an issue because they've suspended the uh, mandates that are the cause of the action. Um, I think it's important to note that the language they're using is they've suspended them, um, which um, doesn't imply that they're not capable of being brought back. So we'll be in court in the 20, on the 21st of this month um, in Ottawa to argue against that motion to dismiss our action. And we'll be saying that there is still a live issue 
And even if the court doesn't think there is a live issue, it should use its discretion in the public interest to allow the hearing at the end of October to go ahead so that the Canadian government has a full opportunity to explain its actions and the Canadians have an opportunity to listen to that and to listen to our arguments against it. And that's how justice and democracy should work. And hopefully it will. Now, how can people support your effort or how can people get the message out? What would you like our audience to take away and potentially share? Um, I, you, you, well, there is, it, you can find more out about our uh, case online now. Uh, there's, there, is, uh, there is more information out about it. And if you were to, um, even if you were to Google my name and federal court and travel mandates, you'll come up with more information now than you would have done a few months ago. Um, into, we, we've largely funded the action um, ourselves. We've had some, uh, we've had many donations which have also contributed very substantially to the cost. None of this is cheap uh, to do. Um, and if uh, people are uh, minded to support the case financially, then they can go to um, the website of a charitable foundation that um, I've, I've recently founded, um, which is supporting the case. So if you make a donation to the Institute for Freedom and Justice, then that donation will be passed on into the cost of the case. And, the, uh, and that would be... Uh, um, www.freedomandjustice.ca which our audience will remember as being uh the same institute that sonia anderson is a, uh, a director in if i'm not mistaken sonia anderson is the executive director of that organization now um and um and uh we the enormous confidence that Sonia is going to do a fantastic job in taking that forward. It's going to do two things. It's going to do education um, and it's going to do litigation that's associated with that. So we want to work ways to bring uh, the Constitution and an understanding of the Constitution of Canada and the freedoms that we ought to experience to more and more people. And we want to continue to fight um, against the um, abuse of those freedoms in um, inappropriate cases as we move forward. And, of course, the federal government actually did release, or rather the judiciary, the, um, what is it, the, the federal court uh, released a number of documents related to your case, which contain a number of very interesting um, fact patterns and, and testimonies, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, that's, that's right. Um, the, you, you can actually uh, go to the federal court website and you can actually locate the documents there and I, all the documents are now available there. Um, Fantastic. There's 13,000 pages of it. So for <laughs> those that, uh, as I say, there are some journalists and I, I think particularly Rupert Subramania and also uh, Noah Chartier from Epic Times has done a fantastic job in, in also in scrutinizing those documents and doing as much as he can to bring to light some of the issues that we've I, that we've identified. Amazing. Well, Carl, thank you so much. We're going to put all of those links in the description once we wrap up the stream here. And um, I just I can't tell you how much I uh, personally appreciate uh, everything you've done personally, the stand you've taken, the actions you're taking now, even more formally with the Institute. Um, you are the role model that, uh, well, us younger folks need. Um, so thank you. And truly, I don't think you will be able to understand the full extent of the impact you've had.
um it, it'll it'll be up to us to uh to to share that so thank you for everything and um have a wonderful time uh in ontario that should be a blast thank you very much thanks for having me on thanks for joining us carl okay fantastic um you see why i like him right <laughs> oh absolutely um yeah hey, very really are just friendlier I, I, i'm sure he just kind of jumped right into to to that <laughs> yeah uh, joining his family over from the uk um but it, it, there's something it, what is it about canadians uh you guys can you guys can get in a fist fight and then like you know just hang out and have a beer later on Hey, I, I think I think that's a lot of Americans too. I, I think I think uh, we have a lot more in common between nations than we think. But Canadians, I don't know. Maybe it's the cold. Maybe it's the proximity to the North Pole and Russia, and somehow having a state wedged between the two. It's very strange. Um, but in my only regret, I didn't get Carl to talk about his uh, experience helping Ed Sheeran get started. I'll have to follow up with him on that later. Um, now, before we wrap up, I just wanted to pull up a uh, comment from Johnny Nice. Are you going to debate that funky Twitter troll? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to just uh, briefly answer that and explain what's going on there? Um, yeah. Um, so I, it looks like uh, next Tuesday evening, um, I'm going to have um, sort of a debate. Yeah, I'm going to try to make it as much a discussion as possible. That's always my goal is to is to just have discourse. But um, we're going to we're going to debate uh, a little bit uh, over um, whether or not the trials you know, performed for the vaccines were uh, meaningful in any particular way. Um, and I think he misunderstands what it means to validate the tests on that level. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I've kind of looked into who he is and I, I can't even find a publication record for him. So I, you know, I, I knew I'd seen him around, but I guess he's just a, a media influencer so far as I can tell. Mm. Um, but, but it would be good at the very least to hear why he believes what he believes. And, um, you know, to, to at least put that conversation to the test. Well, and I'll tell you, there, there was somebody who had who had posted a bit of a warning um, saying they didn't necessarily feel his intentions were earnest. Well, that's As fine. Far, yeah. And, I'll, and I'll let people decide. Right. I mean, people can watch and they can think what they want to think. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, I, I also that I was very impressed by the three terms that he presented he said something along the lines of we're not going to talk over each other we're going to listen you know respectfully um we're, we only will make points that we have data available for right in front of us and um something else like no insulting or something and i just thought that was fantastic so no matter what to me actions speak louder than words and thus far even though he did throw a few you know insults your way he did also thus far um I don't know. I, I let's let's be hopeful. Um, and also, just a reminder to folks: if we're wrong, you know, on this particular issue, and it turns out the testing, uh, very simply put, was good, double thumbs up. That actually has a lot of positive implications uh, potentially that would make our lives much better. So, just as a reminder, being proven wrong is oftentimes actually a very healthy thing. So the possibilities here are either Matthew gets to educate someone in a way that they didn't, you know, fill in some some gaps in their knowledge or vice versa. So no matter what, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, if he can find documentation that that uh, that the tests were validated as having the same um, as being the same for both vaccinated and unvaccinated population, I don't think that exists. I have mm. not heard one. I, I've talked to a number of biologists at this point. Nobody knows of any kind of documentation um, of such testing, but um, he, 
he doesn't seem to uh, believe that that testing is necessary as in, you know, you know, why test for a confounder? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see. Let's see. Let's see whose whose uh, knowledge needs some uh, gap filling. But before we wrap up here, uh, let me just add that you can support rounding the earth uh, in a number of ways. How do I make it so we're still there? Oh, I can't do it anyway. And I do just want to thank once again. Let me just pull up his name. Um, McClay, who once again gave us a very generous $10 rumble rant. Thank you so much. Um, and I do encourage people to go. And uh, if you haven't tried out rumble yet, uh, we do recommend you go over there. However, we are in fact now also a part of the uh, YouTube partnership program, which is very exciting. So you can give a super chat here as well. Um, additionally, you can become a paid subscriber to the rounding the earth Substack. Um, what is the subscriber base now? It's, it's over 20,000, right? Oh, uh, yeah. The total free subscribers, uh, I think it's 21,000. Nice. Nice. So, yeah, the more the more subscribers who if they can afford it, who can throw a few bucks your way uh, for a, a premium subscription, that will only continue to accelerate our ability to have discussions like this with more wonderful people. You can also give a uh, well, there's that Rumble Rant example, five dollar tip on Rockfin. Nice and easy. And more than anything, thank you guys so much. This has been another wonderful episode and um yeah i will be back on friday with rounding the news and uh potentially something fun happening there we'll come back to that and then on monday you're back with not this guest we were just talking about but a different one. Oh, um uh let me check and see who i'm talking with on monday on monday i am um i want to make sure i don't get the next two weeks reversed oh oliver stud oliver stud who is uh working with um the very famous economist, uh, uh, Richard Werner, who might be the, the person you've never heard of who was sort of kicked out of the young global leaders, as in his mm. entire program was removed so that he couldn't come back to the conferences. Um, but you know, very bright economist. Uh, he, he, uh, Oliver Studd and Richard Werner are working together. And Oliver Studd is the CEO of Valhalla Network, which is uh, a, an organization intending to recreate community banking networks around the world. And so I want to talk with him about community bankings and, and what it is that they're doing. So uh, I'm excited about that conversation. Well, folks, tune in for that and much more to come. Um, once again, I have been Liam Sturgis. You can find me at www.liamsturgis.com or at the Liam Sturgis on Twitter. And by the way, uh, Matthew is at EDU Engineer on Twitter. And um, thank you again, guys. We'll see you later this week. Mm -hmm.